You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 91. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcasting app. And visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find your show notes, examples, discussion, and more. <laughs> Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood with the super not low voice. Uh, I'm Joe Zach. <laughs> and uh, Michael Outlaw couldn't make it today, so uh, we'll be making fun of him all episode. That's right. Datadog is a software-as-a-service monitoring platform that provides developer and operation teams with a unified view of their infrastructure, apps, and logs. Thousands of organizations rely on Datadog to collect, visualize, and alert on out-of-the-box and custom metrics to gain full-stack observability with a unified view of all their infrastructure, apps, logs, at cloud scale. And they've got 200-plus turnkey integrations, including things like AWS, PostgreSQL, Kubernetes, Slack, and Java. And you can check out the full list of integrations at the website datadog.com slash product slash integrations. And some of the key features include real-time visibility from built-in and customizable dashboards, algorithmic alerts, things like anomaly detection, outlier detection, forecasting alerts, They've got end-to-end request tracing to visualize app performance and real-time collaboration. And Datadog is offering our listeners a free 14-day trial, no credit card required, and as an added bonus for signing up and creating a dashboard, they'll even send you a sweet Datadog t-shirt. So head to http colon slash slash www.datadog.com slash coding blocks to sign up today. All right, so this episode, we're talking about how to get better at stuff. So we're looking at five different models of learning, kind of um, popular in in pop science right now. And we're going to talk about how we can apply these to software engineering. But first up, a little bit of news. Yep. So as always, we like to thank those who have taken the time to leave us a review. We got a few in iTunes this time. That's from LawFedge, ErasX27, and ZTA192. Thank you very much. And uh, I got uh, Inquisosaurus, <laughs> Gary Alex, and Sarah a- Sarah A. And it's just not as fun without uh, Ally here to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to butcher the names. <laughs> yeah. Or at least stress about them. What you guys don't hear before the show is like, oh, man, how do you say this? How, how, are, are you sure? I don't know. I don't want to say it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. Um, it's not Inquisosaurus, but I kind of like Inquisosaurus better. So you should consider that. Yeah. Inquisorous is what it should be. Yeah. Inquisitress. So, well, either way, thank you very much. We, you know, we appreciate that a lot. So, uh, thank you very much. Yes, indeed. So, you want to yeah. tell us about these things you got here? Yeah. So, a while back, we talked about deliberate program, um, deliberate practice for programmers, and I kind of had um, a bunch of extra research that we didn't get around to talking about, and things that didn't even make it into the talk. And so, uh, we've been kind of sitting on this stuff. We'll wait to uh, talk about it, and uh, well, today's the day. That's right. So, congratulations. I guess. <laughs> So uh, we're going to talk about five different models. Uh, we're going to briefly just mention deliberate practice. Uh, we did a whole episode on that one, so you can go back to uh, episode 78 for that one. But also, um, we've got a couple other different models to talk about, like the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition, the four stages of competence, uh, the learning period pyramid, and the seven learning styles, which is uh, always a fun one. This will be interesting for me because I know nothing about any of these. So I'll be learning yeah. right along with everybody else here. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, first I'll just want to touch on real quick, um, uh, just kind of, um, this is something that we, we talked about a lot uh, in episode 78. So I'm not going to go on too much, but just want to mention that it's really important to kind of know what you're going after before you start. And uh, actually, I want to mention the Complete Developer Podcast had a, a whole episode on um, setting good goals. If you ever heard that um, notion of smart goals, which is like, I, I don't remember what it starts for. Smarts starts stands for <laughs> anymore. I need outlaw. <laughs> outlaw keeps me straight. Uh, measurable, attainable, reachable, something, something goals. Uh, and you should listen to that episode and then you'll know a lot more about it than me. Okay. But I do think it's important to just know kind of what you want. And so I wanted to ask you, like, Alan, like, kind of what you thought a little bit like do you keep like rigid goals man i'd be lying if i told you i set any goals like seriously i and i know that's kind of ridiculous but it's more just what tickles my fancy at any given moment like i, I yeah I, i'm terrible at it mm-hmm. and i think that's totally fair. It's, we have day jobs we have all sorts of competing interests and so sometimes i'll kind of want to learn about something and i'll go and do it and uh, other times i i don't and I, I kind of bounce back and forth. Like sometimes I'll set kind of firm goals and then, you know, achieve some level of success or failure with them and then kind of move on. And sometimes I don't, but I, I like that one year that we kind of set like resolutions and then we all failed at them. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of why I don't set goals is that very reason because I, I guess I know my personality and I know that, that if, if, if I have a very short term thing that I'm working on, I'll go after it like a rabid dog. Right. But if there's something like a new year's resolution or some sort of long-term goal, like it almost weighs me down thinking about the fact that I haven't, you know, progressed at it. And so I just don't set them because I don't want to let myself down. Yeah. And a lot of times like talking about new year's resolutions, like the goals that I set in December, you know, when it's, (laughs) when I'm thinking about yearly type stuff and whatever, like, by the time, you know, June rolls around, I just don't care that much about it anymore. And so I think it's good to kind of adapt and say, you know what? That goal really wasn't that important to me. Now, it's a big bummer if it comes around to the next December and you're still, you know, setting the same goals. That's kind of sad. Uh, yep. My scale is very sad, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think a lot of us have that problem. It's, yeah, it's way bummer. more fun to eat the, the good foods. So, but I also wanted to mention kind of, you know, just like, like specifically, uh, programmer wise, I like to kind of ask whether your goal is to be like the next Uber, um, when it comes to like side projects and learning and kind of, um, programming acumen, like meaning you want to create some sort of disruptive new service. that's going to like take over the world and change the world and make you, you know, the next Zuckerberg, or you want to make like the next cool, like GraphQL or something and, um, kind of do something maybe tech heavier that is kind of more niche and more nerdy, but isn't necessarily going to make you any sort of money. So you're kind of talking about is your focus on doing stuff that regular people will like to use, or do you want to do things to improve like a developer's life or, or your own life or that type of thing? Yeah, it's kind of like that kind of scale. You know, I think there's a lot of stuff in between there, but I like the idea of kind of um, knowing kind of where on the scale you kind of sit with your goals. I think that's really important. Um, you know, because if you're trying to be the next Uber, you're going to spend a lot more time marketing than if you're writing the next database, uh, because you're probably going to spend a lot more time on like consistency and like deadlocks and stuff. Right. And so it's just all about um, picking on something important to you. And I kind of like mentioning too the idea of like um, when it comes to getting better at stuff, like either playing to your strengths or trying to strengthen your weaknesses. And I think last time we talked about, it, I kind of talked about how I was trying to get more of my C's up to B's rather than getting my B's up to A's. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I mean, are you still in that ballpark where you're always looking to to improve the things that you're weaker at? Or are you looking to 
like really sharpen your what you're extremely good at already? Are you still in that ballpark? Yeah, I mean, I I still like going wide. I, I you know, I think that if I was like a PhD student or something, then that would make sense for me to meet maybe focus more narrowly. But as kind of like a professional businessy programmer, like I think it makes kind of sense to to stay wide. And we we had that whole episode on the T shaped developer uh, way back uh, a couple of years now, four or five years. But I still kind of believe in that. But I like being like um, a wide T that's not very tall. <laughs> you know what? It's funny that you say that because I find myself very much in that camp. I like to – I think more or less I, I've found most programming to be all basically roughly the same, right? Mm-hmm. You know, even crossing languages or whatever. But what's not the same are all the pieces that start fitting together to either make your application scale better or to make it, you know, prettier to look at or easier to use or whatever, right? Like the, it's those other pieces that I'm always interested in that maybe I don't have enough time to play with during my, my regular, my regular gig. Yeah. Maybe I'm more interested in being like a W shaped developer or something. And <laughs> I, I think I'm right there with you. Yeah. I just want to touch on goals. And uh, yeah, like I mentioned that to complete developer podcast is uh, their 16th episode. Is that right? But, um, that, uh, that's a really, we'll have it in the show notes there. So, um, I would definitely take a listen to that if you're interested in kind of setting goals. And we know some people like in Slack who uh, have done great jobs by kind of tracking and setting goals and, and does done amazing things. And, uh, I know there's lots of amazing things I haven't done, so maybe I should give it more of a shot. Well, one thing I do like seeing on Twitter, and man, I, I'll, I'll have to look it up while while we're continuing on to the next thing. But this hundred days of programming that a lot of people are doing and that kind of thing. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's flattering that we get called out a lot in those, but I think that's an awesome way for people to actually track things because it's 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 sort of short term, especially in the fact that you're doing things every single day. But on the flip side, because you are dedicating to it for a hundred days, you can you can have little short goals that get met as you're fulfilling your bigger one. Yeah, I um started doing that for a while. I think I got to like seventy eight or something. But I was really surprised at how fast those numbers add up. I mean, like we're professional developers, so like you know, kind of five days a week. <laughs> I, you know, I kind of count that for those day, day one hundred. I'm not sure if you're supposed to count work or not, but I I do. Um, but it's still kind of cool to like look back on the tweets to be like, oh yeah, that was kind of cool. I was doing that a couple of weeks ago, or oh yeah, I was doing that on some Saturday or something. So it's kind of neat to see that progress and like realize like, oh, I guess I do this kind of stuff a lot. I accomplish things even if it doesn't always feel like it. Yeah, and the, and the two people that jump in, into my mind that that do this with the hashtag quite a bit are Shannon and Arlene. They're both really good about you know I did this today, and, and they'll mention what they've learned, what they haven't learned, things that are frustrating them. And and I think that's awesome, right? Because like you said, once you go back after that hundred days, you're probably going to have acquired so much knowledge that the things that didn't make sense on days one through 20 are going to start feeling a lot better as you get towards the end, right? Yep, sure. I started doing around the same time Robert did. And I just, just noticed just right now that uh, Zach Braddy, a uh, friend of the show, uh, just started his hundred days today. So it kind of makes me want to start another hundred days and do it alongside of them. Hey, good luck, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm also kind of tired so right there's that uh, so uh the first uh the first kind of model of like learning and advancing skills i want to talk about was uh deliberate practice which had a whole episode on it but just in brief just wanted to touch on it um and it's basically the idea there's you want to understand your goals um your aptitude being like how good you are already 
Um, and then, um, based on that, you can design, execute, uh, exercises ad nauseum and you track your progress and just repeat. That's the whole kind of thing. We had a whole episode on it, so I don't want to go too much there. Um, but one thing I did want to mention is that this, uh, does have a little bit of controversy around it. especially if you look up like the uh, 10,000 hour rule with like Malcolm Gladwell and whatnot, but for the most part, maybe because it's newer, or, you know, for whatever reason, there's not a lot of controversy around that. And that's one of the things that I was kind of preparing for that episode and preparing for the, the talks I did on deliberate practice. Um, I noticed that people weren't really that angry. They weren't disputing this yet. Maybe it takes a couple of years to catch up, but I was really surprised, especially looking at some of these other models that have, um, quite a few, uh, big detractors out there that this, this one is kind of sitting high at the moment. Well, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like we talked about in that one episode is, when you do, it, it's almost like micro focusing, right? The the whole deliberate practice is you have a particular thing that you want to master, and so going after that, it's hard to argue with that, right? If you're a basketball yeah. player and you want to get better at dribbling, guess what? You're going to go out and practice dribbling, you know, hours a day. It, by the way, anybody who hasn't seen the professor on YouTube, basketball player, you should go watch him. It's awesome. But that's all right. Yeah. It, the dude's undersized, but in a nutshell, this guy's just got crazy dribbling skills. He makes people look silly, but back in the day, he practiced eight hours a day doing that. Right. And, and it's hard to argue with that when you were going after a particular thing, how can you argue that? Right. That is the way to get good at it. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, as long as you're practicing the right way and not practicing the wrong way, well, that's, the wrong muscle memory. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, that's the only argument I could see to this is if you're practicing with sort of tunnel vision, then you're going to miss some of the things that would have made what you were trying to learn better or easier or whatever. But it's still hard to argue the fact that if you do that, you're going to get very good at that, even if it's not the perfect thing to get good at. Yeah, and that's a, a huge part of the talk I did and a huge part of the books that I read on the subject all really emphasized like having a coach and how important it was to have like a coach or mentor there to kind of see outside and be, be, have kind of a, a less biased opinion of you than yourself. And I do feel like whenever I do that talk, it's kind of a bummer for people because like programmers go in, they want to like, you know, come out of there with like a list of the hundred things they need to do to be amazing. And it doesn't work like that. <laughs> so it's kind of a bummer to kind of have to tell people like, Hey, the, the research says you should really work with other people and kind of figure this stuff out together. Let's all hold hands now. So that's interesting. Just, just on the topic of the coaching, have you ever considered doing like the mastermind groups or anything like that, or, or having coaching groups or anything like that? Oh yeah. I think about it all the time. Um, especially we're going to get into some of the ways up here, like even kind of teaching and sharing knowledge can be a really beneficial uh, way of learning. Um, so I, I think about it all the time. It's just a matter of kind of time. And I think that especially if other people are involved, I, I want to kind of dedicate some time and do it right. And, you know, like we're, we're busy. We do podcasts. We've got work. We've got, you know, families and whatnot that, uh, we don't spend enough time with as it is. So, you know, tacking, uh, one more thing on there can get me in trouble with some of those people that I love so much. Yeah, definitely. All right. Yeah, so the first model I want to talk about, and by the way, um, show notes, a podcast app that you're listening in probably has a way for you to easily view the show notes. So if you forget one of these or whatever, you can always go to the web or you can kind of slide over and see these because we try to do really good show notes. Uh, first model is the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition. And like I kind of mentioned above, uh, there's some controversy above it, um, about it. A, a lot of the controversy comes from just basically like how do you draw the lines between the different skill levels and how do you well, measure success? Well, what is this thing? 
Oh, yeah, I guess that's a, a good way. <laughs> good thing to mention. We could argue about it, but I have no idea what we're going to argue about yet. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you about the problems with it. Uh, the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition was designed to provide the optimum way to learn changes, and it's based around how you learn and how you get better um, changing as your knowledge and skill in that subject grow. So the idea is that the way you learn as a novice and the way you learn when you're advanced is going to be different. You can't do the same type of stuff and expect to keep advancing. Okay. So are we talking about in terms of programming, are you talking about like when you're very green behind the ears that you're going to be looking at books and trying to type things in and see if they work versus when you get more skilled, you're just going to start coding away or hacking away or copying examples somewhere and seeing what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, I kind of think like one example here might be like if you're a novice and you're not going to get too much, um, value out of watching or, or say like arguing with your, your friends about the different programming techniques because you don't really know what you're talking about. And it's hard to kind of really have a good viewpoint on that and, uh, get much out of that stuff if you don't know much about it. But if you're an expert, then maybe that's something that you really get a lot of value out because you have your ideas changed and you are challenged and your, um, stereotypes and biases kind of challenged and, and you can really get a, a lot out of that. But um, they actually make a, a, a pretty good um, uh, list of basically things you can do at each level. And there's four levels. So we can go through those and tell you kind of what the level is and what you do at that stage to get better. And so you can think about your kind of skills in programming or maybe your skills at a certain slice of programming like functional programming or abstraction or architecture or whatever. Figure out where you are in this list. And then that tells you where you should be looking to go in order to get better. Cool. And uh, four levels there are novice, beginner, intermediary, and advanced. And uh, novice starts this out. And um, the first thing you want to do is just make sure you understand the tools and the philosophy of the underlying thing you're trying to get better at. And then they kind of explore the ecosystem. So look around, watch some YouTube videos. Um, we've got defined learning goals here and also just... Uh, basically kind of get started type of, you know, if you can get some instruction or whatever at this point, then it's really good. But it's almost like you can't, you can't do too much wrong here aside from maybe jumping ahead of yourself. And when you do that, you potentially learn things wrong or you build um, kind of bad models of the thing that you're trying to learn, which can lead to problems down the road. If you think you understand something and you understand it incorrectly. Yeah, th that's interesting. I, I want to revisit that here after we go through some of these. Cool. Uh, next stage is beginner. And uh, this is the the part in the, the learning journey that you're going to look at the, uh, those training courses and, and buying a book and playground projects. And this was kind of rough for me because like, that's like what I typically do when I want to get better at stuff. It's like, does that mean I'm a beginner? <laughs> well, you know, probably it, because of what you said earlier in that you're always trying to go wider. So you are a beginner in whatever you're trying to pick up, right? I mean, that, well, that's true. That's that's kind of how I look at that. But again, we'll, we'll get back to my other thought on this in a minute. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, I don't. I'm not going to buy a, like a C sharp in depth at this point, probably because I, I feel like I know a lot of the material. Well, although there are some, you know, you can definitely dive deeper. Like uh, the CLR via C sharp is a, a great book that I like to mention because uh, it really does dive very deep into the .NET internals. And I don't know what that's like in a .NET Core world. But I know when I, I read that, it definitely was a uh, very different from the other kind of books that I'd read before on the subject, were very, which were very much like, here's a for loop. Here's how you if. 
It's funny because the buy the book I feel like should be in every one of these, and it's not. It's only in the beginner and and the C sharp uh, via the CLR is a perfect example. Give that to a beginner, and their eyes are going to glaze over, and they're going to walk away from it, and be like, "I'm never touching this." Right? Yep. That is straight up for people who have experience in the, either that language or other languages and want to figure out how to get the most out of it. So. Yeah, and the, the next stage there, intermediary, um, does have experimenting, documentation, and it does mention reading. So I think that's kind of what we're saying a little bit. So it, it's just interesting that kind of differentiates between like reading and buying a book. Yeah, I mean, it's it should be the same thing, but yeah, yeah. I mean, like we, you know, we we had a lot of fun with the Imposter's Handbook there, and now it's very much like a kind of how-to basics kind of book. But it was designed for people that weren't in that novice or beginner stages. It was kind of looking looking at going back and revisiting some of that stuff. And so, yeah, I think that's that's interesting that they they put it there. I think the big thing is is knowing the type of material you're going after at each stage, right? Like there's a big difference between Java for Dummies versus, you know, <laughs> learning Java 1.8 for experts, right? Like it's sort of yeah. in the title. So, yeah, I mean, every step of the way is going to have different things that you need to explore. And and you'll know. You, you'll you'll feel it when you get there and you'll be like, okay, I know this stuff. Now I need to I need to up my game. Yep. And uh, now that that's actually a good point. That brings us to the final point when you're advanced. Um, they've got teach others. And that's the only one that they have there, which I thought was interesting. I like that one. I mean, I would venture to say like this podcast is a prime example, right? None of us are, all three of us on this podcast, we're pretty good at what we do. Are we the best? No, there's always going to be somebody better. But this doing this podcast forces us to buckle down and dig into the things that you normally wouldn't. Right. I mean, that's just in a nutshell, you know, it's, we spend a lot of time prepping for this show and that's because we don't want to get things wrong. We don't want to mislead people. And at the same time, we want to learn from it. Yeah. And you know, that reminds me of uh, an upcoming show that we, uh, we we're going to be talking about eventually here. Started looking at the show notes and I started looking at primitive types and like C sharp and JavaScript and realizing how much I don't know just in that one little thing, like about, you know, say like numbers in JavaScript, it gets like pretty complicated. And a lot of stuff is things I had seen before, but I just hadn't really kind of organized it in my mind that way. And so just me trying to put together the show notes and try to figure out how to talk about it in a reasonable and organized way, uh, really kind of a, like, led to my eyes being opened a lot more on the subject. And so I feel like I kind of get a lot of the weirder things in, in JavaScript in a way I didn't get it before. So pretty excited about that. Definitely. And and we're kind of really looking forward to that episode because a lot of people have been asking about data structures, but it's not a small topic. So it, we'll probably be dedicating a few episodes. Going yep. Going back real quick. So the thing that I had a question about that I think is – is sort of interesting is this whole thing about the beginner when you do a training course or buy a book and then you do a playground project, right? One of the things that frustrates me, and we talked about this a little bit on Docker, uh, when, when, when both you and I were going through the pains of learning Docker and then the joys and the jubilation afterwards, but everything you read out there takes you down a certain path, right? And then you get to the end of that certain path, which is, Hey, I have a container running. Awesome. Wait a second. I need three containers that all work together running. And then the next thing that you'll find is everybody's like, okay, well, look at Docker Compose. And then you get to the end of that and you're like, oh, this is awesome. 
And then you find out after you've spent all that time on those first two, then people are like, no, but that's really not the way you want to do it, right? Now you want to use Kubernetes or you want to use, you know, some other type of container orchestration. And this is the part that really frustrates me because I found this even with React.js. When you take the tutorials, it teaches you a certain way to do it. And then after you get done with it, they're like, you should never do it that way, right? And, and that to me is off-putting both for beginners and experienced people, because as experienced programmers, we know a lot of the pitfalls. Like if you, we've talked about this before, when you, when you see an MVC project and you see things inside actions, views and, and, and controllers, you're like, really, you're going to put every single file you have in those three folders. That's really stupid. Right. And so there's, there's this part of me and I, and I'm curious if it happens to you is when I take on something new, I find myself looking at the tutorials and the guide saying, no way I would do this. And then it takes me off on a tangent, right? Because I'm like, wait a second, there's got to be somebody out here that's saying and says, doesn't give you an example that is complete throwaway after you do the tutorial. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially in JavaScript, because they tend to do things all like all in one file because it's such an expensive language and you can do that. You can fit a lot of stuff in one little file or a couple of different files. When you think about trying to write maintainable code and keeping things smaller and reusable, suddenly it becomes like, a well, where do I put this? And a lot of frameworks and stuff that you'll read doesn't really address that. And then you'll see um, in, you know, kind of bigger code bases that people will figure out their own ways of arranging that stuff. And sometimes it's uh, pretty interesting how they end up doing it. Yeah, it can be really frustrating because that's that's one of the things about learning that way. Like, I guess what I'm getting at is when you're in the learning phase to truly want to use something, you kind of have to ask those questions as you go along because like you said, yeah, it's really cool that you could throw together a JavaScript application in one file. Is it practical? No. And that's where you, like I'd highly recommend if you're getting into something deep like a React app or, or anything like that, go search on GitHub for something that somebody's put together that's like, maybe it even mentions the word architecture. And then that way you can look and see, hey, what did the end result of this application look like, right? What's the file system look like? What's the layout of the files? What's all this? Because those are all those non-functionals that matter so much when you actually go to start putting hands on the keyboard and make things happen. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of like... um. Back in the day, I would kind of get into these like imposter syndrome fits where I'd be like, oh God, I'm, I'm a pro programmer and I don't even know how to build Firefox. And so I'd go and like try and build Firefox, which is, uh, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time it was pretty hefty. You know, there's a lot of reading and a lot of background knowledge and a lot of things you had to kind of set up and not just like install. You'd have to configure and you build, be building these things to build these things. And you'd have various problems, especially if you're on Linux and you're not used to Linux like I was not used to Linux. And, uh, that would just make me feel worse about myself. Uh, but, um, I think that now it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's never been easier at any time in our lives to go find source code for whatever technology or whatever domain you're interested in and take it see what other people did with it and run with it. Unfortunately, you may pick up some bad patterns from that. So you should diversify, but I think it's, uh, never been better. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think for the rest part, you know, I mean, the novice stuff is just kind of, you know, really, like every one of these steps, like I kind of think you should just be doing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of agree with that. I mean, the the only difference is I think the novice is really somebody that's new to programming. And then everything else, if you're going wide, is the rinse repeat of beginner, you know, intermediary and advanced. 
Oh, yep. But you know, and the uh, the kind of the controversy here, if you read up about it, it's basically um, between them saying like, okay, well, how do you know when someone's a novice and a beginner? Like, how do you even define the domain? First of all, for different people that have like different specialties and different goals. And then how do you draw those lines? Like, when should you start training those cor- using those courses? Wouldn't you use those uh, experiments? Like, so, and they say because there's no kind of hard lines between those. Like, if you couldn't draw a hard lines between them, how did you test to come up with these theories? <laughs> I, mean, I was like, oh. That's fair. But you know what? That's just programmers being programmers, being way too analytical and just being like, hey, it's a feeling. Right? Yeah. I, I I hate to say it, but that's really what it boils down to. The only problem is, and we've talked about this before, is you don't know what you don't know. So don't get arrogant and think you're an advanced developer, even though you've never touched 90% of what that particular paradigm has to offer, you know? Yeah. I think uh, there's a lot of things in this world that are hard to measure. And that doesn't mean that you just like throw your hands up, give up and go do something else. Like I think you, you know, either get used to working with imperfect measurements or you try to find the measurement that like gets you the results that you want. It doesn't mean you just take your ball and you're like, I don't know. It's too hard to give up. Right. And it's going to do whatever floof around. (laughs) So what we got next. So that was it for the Dreyfus bottle. Uh, next one is the four stages of confidence. And, uh, you'll see a lot of that. um, a lot of things when you're reading about Dreyfus model, the kind of references. So I wanted to bring it in and uh, it's a little square. Um, I'm not going to try and describe the drawing because we know how that goes on this show. <laughs> and uh, if you're new to listening, then uh, you know, we'll spare you this time. Hey, wait a second. You said this is a square because on, on Wikipedia, it's a triangle. It's a pyramid. Wait, the four stages. Yeah. If you click the link that you put in the show notes there, it, it's, it's a pyramid. That's funny. It's a pyramid, but it's also a square. So if, <laughs> all right, here Explain goes that. Time. <laughs> Explain that difference. Yeah. So the deal with the square is if you do kind of like a, a grid here and on like one side of the grid, you do unconscious and conscious and the other side you do uh, competent and incompetent. Okay. Then you basically got four quadrants and the first is unconscious incompetent. And uh, like if, what you know, what you're mentioning here in the Wikipedia article is it basically does the same thing, except it's got uh, a, a triangle where it's basically got the unconscious competent at the top. So like the master, and it's kind of just implying that there's like a whole lot fewer masters than there are unconscious incompetent. So just a different way of drawing the same thing. It's funny that you could get totally different primary shapes out of the same information. <laughs> That's what, when you said it was a square and you weren't going to describe it. I was like, well, I want to see it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's totally not a square. So. so if you're new to the show, that's how we do with diagrams. We uh, we tell you how it's a square and how is the triangle at the same time. And then we <laughs> uh, describe both of them poorly and move on. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, but, but all right. So, but I think this is worth describing though. Just so if it's easier to talk about it in a pyramid, really, if you think about it. So at the very bottom is the unconscious and incompetent, right? You don't know anything. But you also know that you're kind of incompetent at it, so that's fine. That's where that's where it's, there's a. Well, this lot is the one, no. This is the one where you don't know that you're incompetent. And uh, what I I like oh. this is the the worst case is wrong like, intuition. Don't know okay, that's- that you're bad. And what I uh, really like from this point is that they say that a lot of people in this spectrum will uh, undervalue a skill. So that might be like you go to a dinner party and like there's one person there who's like, you know, I, I did a little bit of HTML, you know, on my my uh, grandma's WordPress site, <laughs> yeah, like. I, I I get this stuff and you're, you know, getting like getting your teeth, right? Uh, because they don't know necessarily 
not that there's anything wrong with HTML or WordPress or grandmas, but <laughs> it's just that there's a big world out there. If you start thinking about all the other stuff that's involved with like websites and accessibility and browsers and security. And Hey, were you talking it, about a 12 year old that was talking to his grandma? I was just curious <laughs> where the voice came from. <laughs> uh, that's just, that's just one of my many voices that I have running through my mind telling me things. Oh, uh, that's amazing. Evil things all the time. Okay. So that bottom one says wrong intuition. So that's, you think you know a lot and you really know nothing. So that's good. Yep. So then the next yep. step up was conscious incompetence. But that means that you just are bad at analyzing things. Yeah, but at least you know that you're bad. So you can say at that point that like, okay, I know that I'm not good at this. Let me go find some help. Okay, that, that's fair. Then the next step up from that on this pyramid is conscious competence. And this means that you're pretty good at pretty good at analyzing what you know and you don't know. Yeah, and that's kind of the point where you're like, okay, I can do this, Joe, get the coffee, sit down, turn the music on, like focus, like I can do this. That's the kind of the stage where like you're thinking very deliberately. Um, it's not really a lot of fun. You know, you got to kind of psych yourself up, but you can do it and you can use the skill. You've got it. It just reti- requires a lot of attention and effort. And then the very tip of this thing is where Joe lives, and that's the unconscious <laughs> competence, which is you just have the right intuition most of the time with what you're doing. Yeah, that's where I want to get to, at least, uh, to where this kind of stuff just kind of flies out of my fingers. I don't even have to think about it, and typing speed is my bottleneck. Um, but not there yet. One thing I thought was kind of interesting about this here, uh, this particular level, the unconscious competence, is that it does say that teaching can be tough depending on how you learn. And I didn't dive into the papers to kind of see how they say that, but I definitely have been there where like sometimes you can understand something so deeply and be so unable to explain why that is. Man, that does happen quite a bit. If you have kids, that's really easy to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can imagine. It's sort of like something you're like trying to explain, like a calculus concept to somebody who only has, uh, you know, basic arithmetic. Yeah, like trying to figure out how to get from you know A to B can be really tough because you there's there's so much that you have in between those two spots that it's hard to kind of distill it to something that makes sense to someone who only knows arithmetic. Yep, totally. All right. Yeah, and so that's pretty much it for the four uh, stages of competence. The only thing I, I wanted to additionally call out about that one is for the conscious incompetence step, that's the one where you know that you're not so great. Uh, they specifically mentioned that making mistakes and learning from them is important. Well, that's how you move up the pyramid, right? Is eventually yep. you start you start understanding what you don't know. Yeah, and I think that's probably important in every level. I just like that they call it out here specifically because it's kind of like if you're at the point in something where you're like, uh, I, you know, I, I know enough to hurt myself. That's when, if you want to get better, that's when you need to start hurting yourself. <laughs> and that's how you push past that point. So if you ever find yourself saying like, Ooh, I don't know, this is like SQL performance tuning. I don't feel comfortable doing that. Then you can recognize, Oh, Hey, what I said there is a, a statement that's indicative of me being consciously incompetent here. And this is a point where I could take this opportunity and push past it in order to make it to the next level. So were there arguments against this particular pyramid or this this quadrant setup? Yeah, a little bit. Um but they it was one of those um this one was actually much less than the others, but um the like the problem again was basically the lines. Like if you can't draw the lines between these two stages, then how could you test your theory? How did you develop your theory? Did you just make this stuff up, Mr. Author? Dude, this one's actually pretty easy. You won't know intrinsically. <laughs> But somebody else could probably tell you. Like, yeah. No, nah, dude, you really don't know what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> uh, 
And so that that was a nice little uh, triangle or square. Very nice. All right. And with that, it's that time of the show where we like to beg you to where if you would like to give back to us because we don't have anything like a Patreon or anything, even though people have asked us many, many times, if you would like to give back and put a smile on our face, Write us a review. We've got a link set up, codingblocks.net slash review. We have links over to iTunes or Stitcher, depending on which one you'd be more happy to do with. If you want to do it on Stitcher, you don't have to sign up for an account or anything. Um, so yeah, if you, if you'd like to, you know, put a little smile on our faces, please do take time, go up there and do it. Or you can drop us an email too. I mean, we like getting those as well. So thank you for all those that have taken the time to do it. And, and thank you for those that are considering doing it as well. Yep, and um, I got a special request uh, the other day that we uh, do a little bit more Google Feud here. So uh, I had an idea for three if you're interested. I, I am definitely interested, and in, and we're not doing the survey says, right? Because that just that feels really wrong without Outlaw here. Yep, no survey says today. Sorry. Yep. All right, so yeah, let's do some Google Feud. Let's see how bad I'm right. at this. Yeah, and uh, the first one that came up here with, and we'll, we'll keep this short, uh, just some supposed to be fun here is uh, Google. And what I did uh, for Google is I said, is Google blank? What do you think people said about it? Evil. Nope. Really? Yep. Is Google spying on me? Nope. Really? I expected that one too. You get one more guess. Is, Something in the top five. Is Google... Uh, I don't know, man. I give. Now, let me try doing this uh, in incognito just in case I am uh, skewing the results here. Okay. No, it's uh, pretty much the same. So, uh, number one is, is Google down? That's the number one search term. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, number two, is Google making us stupid? Yes. <laughs> yeah and then it just starts getting weird uh for first one for me actually uh when i didn't do incognito is is google voice free which is kind of an odd thing to be ranked so high i thought hold on let me go to google.com and do search is google oh so like is google a number that made sense yeah i also like uh is google a website <laughs> Yeah, most of these are really just, is Google Fiber in my area? Is it pay safe, drive secure? I like, is Google always right? Oh, man. How are you going to ask Google that? <laughs> I will say this. Of all the digital assistants, it's the most right. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Oh, man. That's really good. So, uh, I got another one for you. Um, it's kind of in the same vein. Uh, is Facebook. Ooh. Ooh, is Facebook down? That's got to be one. Yep, that is number one. Okay, yeah, that that had to be one. And people would go a little bit crazy without it. Ooh, when I actually, it's number three when I did it in incognito. Ah, uh, is Facebook stealing my information? Surprisingly, not in the top ten. No. Maybe that's because Google kind of pushes that result down. Because I feel like that should be up there. Yeah. Um. What's the other one? Is Facebook? Making us antisocial. Nope. Okay, I don't know. So, um, the first two. Oh, the first one is is Facebook from Google. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, second one is is Facebook owned by Google? Really? 
Yep. Then we get Facebook down. Then we get, is Facebook shutting down? Is Facebook dying? <laughs> Going away. Yep. Is Facebook watch free? Did, is there a Facebook watch? I don't know. <laughs> and then another one is, is Facebook free? <laughs> yeah, not really. <laughs> Steal yep. your information. It's, they harvest. <laughs> so we'll do uh, one more here. And this time, uh, I thought we'd do, uh, is, is Twitter. Ooh. Um, is Twitter, is Twitter down? That's going to be one. Yep. Number one. Okay. That's going to be one. Uh, is Twitter, uh, is Twitter going away? Yep. Uh, that, that is number two. Is Twitter dying? Okay. Uh, and then I don't know anything after that. The next one is, is Twitter free? Really? <laughs> yep. Okay, and then uh, is Twitter profitable? Presumably we've got some investors interested. Uh, and then is Twitter owned by Facebook? But what is this with everybody thinking everybody's owned by somebody else? That's really Yeah, I don't know. So uh, people think Facebook is owned by Google and Twitter is owned by Facebook. Huh. I think Google's skewing what they want people to know about these things. Yeah, definitely. Uh, especially with like no one, none of them asking about spying or like, is no one really asking that question? Is that not in the top 10? Well, this is interesting. I went to Bing, <laughs> and if I remember right, they were stealing result or searches from Google oh, yeah. back in the day. But it's all the same stuff. Is it down? Is it down? Is it down? Is it dying? Uh, I did the Facebook one. It, yeah. It's interesting how how programmers think about people stealing data, but the reg- the the rest of the world is just like, yeah, whatever. It's what it is. <laughs> you know? Yep. I hear you. Oh, wait, uh, do you want to do one more uh, uh, top secret surprise round? Yeah, sure. Why not? All right, let me get incognito back up. How about uh, our design patterns? Ooh, our design patterns necessary. Let me redo this. <laughs> I messed up. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much uh, our design patterns still relevant is number one. Okay, cool. I like that. Our design patterns bad. Yeah, I mean, like you kind of like hit like the top five all with the first one. Okay. Are they useful? Are they overrated? Are they important? Are they language specific? Are they only for object oriented programming? Oh, okay, those are good. Yeah, yeah. Hey, very much relevant still. Yeah, I still have those questions myself actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, cool. So that was fun. Excellent. Hey, uh, I'm going to do one for you here. All right. Is Amazon? down <laughs> number two uh, owned by google no no all right um profitable yes that is one of them it's in the top 10 is amazon prime video free number one i was gonna, I was gonna say free but i was like no that's silly yeah oh, and there's another one is amazon prime worth it if you buy yeah. a lot sure definitely is it coming to Atlanta? Is it coming to Georgia? Obviously, incognito didn't matter at all here. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, they are definitely, you know, serving you results for your region. But, yeah, pretty cool. It's all about prime and free, basically. And is it up? Yeah. There's a little uh, insight into the human condition there. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, let's jump back into what we've got. 
But. Yeah, and the next learning model uh, coming up here is we talked about deliberate practice, the Dreyfus model, and then the um, the four something somethings. The uh, I don't remember what the four things were. <laughs> the four stages, stages of incompetence of, com- of competence. Yeah, and now we're talking about the triangle. And I uh, accidentally closed the show notes, but I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) Brief brief Uh, intermission. Brief intermission. And yeah, so now we're talking about the learning pyramid, uh, also known as the cone of learning or cone of experience. And uh, this is kind of similar to the things we talked about. It's just a different kind of slice on it. It's basically how, um, I don't know, how would you describe this? Is like uh, basically how, how much, your given activity contributes to you actually learning. Hmm. And so it kind of starts at the bottom and, and works its way up. Um, so they say that if you're watching a lecture, it's only like 5% worth of value. So the um, the return on your investment for that time is only about 5% if you're just passively watching a lecture. Because you're just not going to retain it. Right. Interesting. And reading is 10%. I guess it's, uh, they're saying it's a little bit, uh, I have a harder time reading sometimes than I do listening. So I, I take some, uh, I don't know. I have a hard time with that. Reading, they say it's 10%. Audio visual, 20%. Hey, so if, we're up there. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Uh, so we got audio in there, but I think they want that visual component too. So this is almost like if you're watching something with like some, you know, PowerPoint, uh, as compared to just watching somebody standing up and giving a speech. And I guess if you break up lecture and audio visual, then yeah. I mean, if I'm just like sitting there watching somebody, but I do love the podcast. So I like to be out there mowing the law and listening to something. I definitely learn a lot, learn at least of things to learn about when I'm listening. I, you know, one thing that is interesting about the audio visual, they've, there've been studies done. Like, have you seen the YouTube videos? I'm sure you have. They drive me crazy where somebody's talking and they'll type the words up on the screen as they're saying them when they yep. try. They've proven that that, that retention is way greater when they have the words show up at the same time that people are saying the same thing. Well, I, I love that. I actually, I turn it on captions for Netflix and stuff too now. Really? Yeah. But then you're not watching the movie. You're reading the captions. Yeah, I know, but I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't get it. I don't know why I started doing that. Uh, It just works out really well for me. There's something about the words. Like, I feel like when I watch a show and I pay attention to the words, like, I remember it. But most of them aren't that important, though. Like, you're watching a show on Netflix. Yeah, they're not even right half the time. (laughs) You're like, how did that get through? (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, or someone will like cough or something, and it's like cats fighting. You're like, oh, that was like cats fighting. <laughs> <laughs> so that was audiovisual. Uh, demonstration, uh, 30%. Uh, and you know, I didn't look to see if that was like you and being involved in 30% if you're just watching it, but I'm going to assume that, uh, you know, I think of like a code demo as being like a demonstration as compared to audiovisual where you just got some slides and some arrows. Yeah, I think so. And I take some umbrage with this one as well because uh, I feel like a lot of times um, people feel pressured in uh, like a coding talk to like actually show code executing and they kind of get nervous if the demo doesn't work. But like, man, I'll tell you, uh, I've seen a lot of presentations and I believe you. <laughs> if you tell me that something worked or it worked yesterday, but now the demo's busted because your trial license ran out or something, which uh, happened to me recently, <laughs> <laughs> I, like I believe you. I don't need to see 
you know, you hit compile in order to believe that the you made a repository pattern or, or whatever it is. Like, But I will say there are times that just seeing somebody go through the motions makes that stuff less intimidating for the other people who are watching. Right. Because it's like, oh, oh, I thought it was magic, but you just did this click and you did that. And it's, I don't know, it, 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 it almost instills confidence in the people watching. And maybe that's why this is higher. Oh, yeah. I guess like a you could do this too kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I just think about the times where we're like, okay, first we're going to add the inputs and then we're going to go over here to the controller. And we're going to add it and we're going to add the column to the model. I'm like, oh, man, I know what you're doing. <laughs> Fast forward. <laughs> yeah. If it, if it's vanilla stuff, but then again, you're probably not the target audience for people that are learning from the very ground up. So that's true. Uh, so that was thirty percent for demonstration. Now, um, here's where we do take a jump, and this is actually participatory, uh, participatory teaching methods. And so this is I should have read I should have read this before talking about it. <laughs> I think we mentioned we uh we, t- we put the notes together for this a while back. So apologies. Um, but participatory teaching methods is when you actually get uh, people involved, and so you're kind of doing some hands-on kind of type stuff, uh, lead instruction. And that that jumps all the way up to 50% effectiveness. That makes sense. So that's pretty cool. And then um, practice by doing is 75. So that's way up there. How is that not higher? If you're doing it, how are you not up towards the very top? Well, there's definitely things I've done and I've totally forgotten. Like every regular expression I've ever written. Okay, that's fair. (laughs) All right. And then the tip of the iceberg. Uh, once again, teaching is going to take the cake here. Um, apparently, when you try to teach others, you retain 90% of what you're talking about. And it makes sense because you don't want to tell somebody something wrong. I mean, we don't mind telling people wrong things, but most people do. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of times um, when you're trying to just kind of explain something that you know, like it forces you to kind of organize your information a little bit differently. And sometimes um, when you get people those questions Sometimes you think about them in a different way or you need to go find the answers. And so I, I think that's kind of where that comes from. And it also just kind of helps ingrain that stuff in there. So it's funny, like um, the learning permit uh, permit is one of the ones that has the most controversy around it where people just flat out say, it's wrong. Where are the lines? Where'd you get these numbers from? Hmm. You know, like these numbers are awfully convenient, 5, 10, 20, 30%. Like, yeah, I mean, sure, you could argue yeah. about the numbers, but I think it's pretty... I think how they've laid it out makes a lot of sense, right? The yeah. the ways that people retain stuff. Now, obviously, this isn't going to fit for everybody because some people are very visual. Some people like to read and they learn better that way, right? But yep. but I think this is a pretty decent breakdown. Yeah, there's something about me and listening where like I can like a lot of times I'll remember like exact sentences or whatever from something I listen to. It's just something that that uh, I'm able to do for whatever reason. Um, particularly with podcasts, like, especially if I'm doing something physical at the same time. Yeah. Like if I'm mowing the lawn, like I can almost remember like the last three podcasts I was listening to as I was mowing the lawn and I can almost tell you like where it was in the podcast, like on this hill or whatever. Um, it's kind of weird. It, well, I mean, your mind's not really engaged doing anything else. So it's weird how that works. And that's actually why I love podcasts too, is because when, when my mind's completely not engaged in something, then, then I feel like I'm not wasting time. Yeah, I wonder if there's something to that. Uh, that would be kind of interesting. To know it's like if you're like kind of at your capacity, or if like uh, you're kind of mixing like physical something and mental something, like it takes up all your attention, so you're not like kind of left wandering and fidgeting or whatever. I bet it does. I mean, it, our buddy Carl from uh, MS Dev Show, he listens while he's working, which is just. A, and now, granted, he says he has to listen at regular speed, but he retains the information, dude. I've tried it. If I'm working, my mind cannot focus. 
Like I'll yep. either miss all of the podcast or I'll miss all of what I'm doing. What are the other? Yeah, I'm, I I can't do it either. Um, there are times like there's things I'll do like I'll kick off a build or something. And it takes like eight minutes. Like I could I could listen to a podcast for eight minutes, yeah. especially if my computer is like melting at the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's excellent. Yeah, but uh, yeah, lots of controversy over this one. Uh, all about those numbers. Like, how did you get it? How did you measure? How did you test? Uh, like, uh, say if you're like um, doing a lecture and you test, um, you're testing after the lecture is over, right? If you're um, doing participatory or, or practice by doing like um, the, the time to actually testing may be a lot faster. And I didn't quite say that right, but like if um, there's just problems with the testing method. So a lot of times if you test them on days later, the results are going to be different than if you test them the moment after. And, and some, some of the ways that they did some of the testing for this stuff uh, was just kind of shaky on how they got the numbers. And a lot of it was done via surveys and, and stuff. And so, so it just, wasn't a scientific approach. Right. And there's also the kind of this notion too, it's like, well, maybe you get different things out of the lecture and different things out of the participatory. So was the lecture trying to teach you how to swim? If so, that's not going to work out very well, but the demo is probably really good. But if the demo is about, um, you know, the elements in the periodic table, like maybe a lecture is a little bit more effective than, at, you know, teaching you like the alkali metals and the gases. Whereas the, you know, the demo didn't have enough, you know, like seeing some stuff in little jars isn't very effective. So, it, you know, maybe the actual material behind stuff has a big impact on the learning method too. And the cone totally ignores that. So that's why it's controversial. But I did think that it's just really interesting to see teaching up there so high. And I like it with all this stuff, you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt. But we do keep seeing like a lot of the same kind of themes coming up. And so it's not worth che- like chewing on and thinking about and figuring out what works for you. Definitely. And uh, last one we got here, um, the, the learning styles. And so um, this one has also been um, quite controversial. People people hating on it. Haters going to hate. <laughs> and I'm sure we've all heard this before. It's a, talk about the seven learning styles. Like they used to say that someone uh, might prefer learning using pictures. So you're a visual learner. Um, you know, I mentioned I liked podcasts. So they might say that um, uh, verbal. So I prefer seeing seeing or hearing words as compared to somebody who is oral which means that you prefer learning via sound and music somehow which is kind of weird um but uh, the seven types are visual oral verbal physical logical social and solitary and uh, the idea behind that is that some people might learn better uh than others in certain um what am i trying to say here like like say for example alan you maybe you're a more physical learner than i have like someone actually kind of shows your hands push, tells you which keys to push and and gets that going like you might learn a skill better but like i might uh, prefer learning kind of via argument i might get more out of something by kind of debating and having someone explain to me the reason behind uh, why something works rather than me actually kind of mucking around with a wrench or whatever yeah, so I, I kind of think about a carpenter, right? You can look at all day how you should do something, but so it might be easier for you to put your hands on a saw and see how that works, right? Yeah, and one thing I've noticed for me is um, I've gotten into um, watching YouTube videos for house repairs. And like all this stuff's in blogs. Like you can look, like you can read up a blog. And it, like uh, it'll have pictures. Read up a blog. You can look. It'll have pictures. It'll draw whatever you'll see. The forums. It's nice. Um, but when I watch the YouTube video that actually shows the person like doing the thing on the w- the washing machine or whatever, there's something about that that it, like I get it. Even if it's a different washing machine, whatever. Like I can actually kind of see it happening. And so I kind of wonder with this one too. It's like 
maybe this is another case where the problem domain of the thing that you're trying to solve uh, is has a big impact on how you need to learn how to do it. Yeah, that's that's very true. I would imagine. I mean, an interesting just side thought on this is when I used to do the headphone reviews and all that kind of stuff. I used to do blog posts, or they weren't blogs; they were written reviews, right? Just huge, tons of pictures. Took forever to make those things. And at one point, I was I was just curious what how are people looking at the page? You can do what's called like a click stream. Right. And you can see exactly where a person moved the mouse on the page and all that kind of stuff. Kind of creepy if you didn't know it existed, but you can totally, it's not real time spying, but you can almost record what people do on the page. Dude, people would scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page, read the conclusion and leave. Like it, it, it was everything. And I think at the time I was trying to monetize with something like Google AdSense or, or something like that, or even click throughs to Amazon. I think, I think the first few months I made like $2 a month, like almost nothing. But then to the point of what you're talking about with videos, there's a level of involvement there that is, that is way different than just reading. And I could take that same product, do a 10 minute review on YouTube. And I want to say like the first, the first time that I did that, my earnings in a month was like a hundred bucks. And, and it was literally same content. Same content. The only difference was I was showing videos of the device or of the headphones, whatever it was, and talking about it. And people are drawn into that more. It, and, and it was, it was easy to prove. Like I had months of no earnings and no clicks. And then literally as soon as I went to that other medium, the, the level of, of involvement was just massive. So it, it's true when you see these things. I mean, and it's funny because trying to break these down, I know we're talking about learning styles, but it's just part of the human interaction. Sometimes people want to be drawn in by other people, you know? So, yeah, for sure. And I kind of wonder too, it's like, you know, I say like I have a hard time kind of reading and like reading comprehension, I feel like later, but I also know that there's whole movies that I've sat and watched in the theater and I don't remember the ending. I can't tell you <laughs> what happened anymore. So it's like that stuff just went in one eyeball and out the other for whatever reason. So I, I do think there's something to be said for different things and different kind of level of involvement. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I didn't like the movie or anything. It just, for whatever reason, it just didn't stick with me. And so, uh, you know, there's uh, some controversy around this and all, all the stuff like, you know, the, the five different types and the kind of controversies around it. We've got links in the, in the show notes here, but um, you'll see that there's just a lot of the same kind of things to say. It's, it's, how are you measuring this? Is it really accurate? Like, if, so if I say like, I'm an audio learner, Maybe what I'm really saying to you is that I pay attention to things with my mind when I'm mowing the lawn and I do a lot of mowing lawns. And what I'm saying uh, also on the other side of that is like, well, I try reading right before I go to bed and I get really sleepy because that's, you know, my bedtime. And so maybe it's not that I'm a better learner one way or the other. It's other circumstances that are, you know, changing kind of how I prefer to learn and don't actually mean anything like systematically. So I am curious, like you kind of had this, the, the series of podcasts that we've done on this now, like what drove you to finding learning styles? Did, did you feel like you were struggling to learn some things and you wanted to know how to, like, were you trying to hack your learning or what, what was it exactly that, that drove you to dig into this? 
Yeah, sure. It's basically I'm um, just trying to figure out kind of like what anyone listening to us is listening to us for. <laughs> uh, I try to figure out like what's in common. Like what are people doing in our Slack? What are people doing commenting? Like why are people listening? Like what are they trying to get out of this? And what I kind of like theorize is that um, the people listening to you know technical podcasts want to be better programmers. And so I got me kind of thinking. It's like, well, how do you how do you do that? How do you help people? How do I get to be a better programmer? And so I read a bunch of different books. I think like um. The Dilbert Practice Talk, I, I mentioned like five separate books and like different things that kind of pulled out from each of them. And so I just kind of amassed a whole bunch of information. I wrote a couple of blogs on it over at the uh, Coding Blocks uh, blog and, um, and just put together a whole bunch of notes. And so I was just really trying to understand like what it means to be good and what it means to, you know, or, or how you get better at something. Okay, cool. So it was sort of trying to figure out how we can best provide information to to everybody listening. Yep, and I was also greedy to uh, make use of it myself. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, all right, so I think that that go ahead. <laughs> I think there might be a dog whining at the door. Sorry, I don't hear it at all. Okay, good. Then never mind. Yeah, there's there is no dog. So uh, the resources we like for this, we've gone over several of the chapters in one of them, the Imposter's Handbook, and then we've got several other links to describe the various things that we've talked about above, as well as we have links talking about the controversy. So if you just want to dig in and find out why people say these are terrible or whatever, you know, that's a good place. Have you ever found too, that like an argument or a good debate makes things sink in? I I find it ironic that almost none of that has shown up here. Yeah. The only, the closest thing I saw there was, where was it in the, uh, I think the Dreyfus model, which basically talked about kind of, um, like documentation or experiments. I, I kind of thought like when they said experiments, like as opposed to like a playground project, I kind of thought maybe that meant more like thought experiments, like where you kind of posit something, you like get it beat up and, and have it uh, kind of, you know, have it shake the truth out. It's funny. Cause I mean, like some of my, I still remember the conversations and it's kind of ridiculous, but comments, I, our buddy, Will Madison, he had, you know, at one point when we all worked together, we had this, we had, his hour long debate about whether comments were good or not. And, <laughs> and he sort of swayed me to they're not. And then we read clean code and all that kind of stuff. I was like, I totally get it right now. I hate comments, you know, but it's funny how those things do stick with you when you have a very heated or passionate debate about, you know, why something is or why something isn't. So it, it's kind of ironic to me that, that that's not part of some of this is, mm-hmm. I don't know, having those, those real conversations. Um, yeah, it's a really good point. That's why I like doing the show so much. Yeah, yeah, true. All right, so now it's time for my favorite part of the show. It's the tip of the week, which I totally didn't prepare for, so <laughs> I'm going to have to find one. Uh, All right, well, I guess I'll go first then. Yeah, man. Go ahead. Yeah, so there's this website called dev.tube, which uh, is basically like a curated list of YouTube videos and channels. And so uh, if you go there, you can go and um, like find a bunch of like programming videos and talks and stuff from conferences and whatnot. And it's got uh, really nice features for like discovery. So you can look for like tags on like say JavaScript or machine learning or whatever and just find tons of videos and even have rankings. So you can like sort by uh, machine learning um, most popular and just uh, chow down on tons of free content. And it's just dev.tube and uh, Codeblocks is not there, but we're going to be. I actually looked up, um, at least I, I hope they accept my submission. Uh, if you've got your own videos, like we've got our own videos at, over at YouTube, then there's a, a process there that's kind of like uh, 
you you go through GitHub essentially, and you kind of uh, add your stuff there. And uh, if it gets approved, then you'll get your stuff added. And it looks like they're adding stuff all the time, staff picks, all sorts of stuff. And so um, it's pretty cool. And it's amazing to me just looking like how many of these videos I haven't seen or haven't even like heard of the channels. And so there's a lot of awesome content out there that you could be watching right now. Most excellent. So I guess. I'm going to do mine, even though by the time this thing airs, I will have probably finished my talk down at Ignite. But right. I might as well give you a little piece of 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 information that I found out with Azure Functions. So, in short, you can only have like one function per project, which is kind of interesting. So, if you think of, uh, so if you're not familiar with Azure Functions, it's basically this whole notion of serverless computing, which is uh, AWS has their version. It's called AWS Lambda. Azure has theirs. It's Azure Functions. But it's basically almost like uh, web services that, that you don't have to host a machine. You don't have to patch the machine, any of that kind of stuff. When it runs, you pay for it. You get to use it. When it's not running, you don't pay anything, right? So, that said... One of the frustrating parts for me was typically in a function, if you're doing Azure functions, you're thinking like, uh, like services, like microservices, basically. And code duplication was one thing that really bugged me because each Azure function, if you're going to have two web triggers, for instance, which are basically just HTTP triggers, you call a website and then it's going to fire off the function. If you have to use the same thing, like let's say it's it's an accounting thing, you have a calculator class, right? The way that you have to share, it's not like you would have a, a VSTS solution or something or a Visual Studio solution file to where you just share this project between things. You can't do that. There's a few different ways you can do it. You either have to create a NuGet package that you could then load in or an NPM if you're doing JavaScript. You know, depending on what your language is, pick your package manager and you can do it that way. So that's one way you can share classes. Another way is in Azure Functions, if you're doing C Sharp, they have these CSX script files. And you can actually do a pound load, which will allow you to load in a CSX file from a shared directory, right? So here's the interesting thing. The Azure Functions all have to be in separate projects, but you can have a folder that's in the same space because it's basically, if you think about it, you have to have storage for your functions. You can have a folder that's accessible from all these different functions to where you can share those same files. So you can do a pound load. And then there's also another way, and I want to say it was pound ref, and I'd have to look it up, but... But just know there are ways to share things. They're not the most straight, like you wouldn't have thought about it just off the top of your head, right? Because you typically think about deploying your assembly or, or your program. So there's these other things you have to think about up front. So if you plan on getting into serverless and any of that kind of stuff, know that there are ways to share files. It's not going to be obvious or share classes, but that's that's how you go about it. And Oh, very cool. Yeah, it was really neat, and it's really one of those things that's frustrating. It's kind of like the Docker thing I mentioned earlier. When you start out, you're like, okay, cool, I got this. Wait, now I need to do something with it. Now what do I need to do, right? Like, it's just it's that constant learning thing, right? So I was somewhere in between the the uh, novice and the beginner levels on that one, that one section. And one other thing I want to point out, I guess this is a super long tip, is if you haven't played in the cloud, this is – 
one of the most awesome ways to get started because it's so dirt cheap. So I've, I, I have an Azure function up that, that I was working with to do this talk, right? I want to say for the, so the storage is separate. You have to pay for the storage. I want to say I paid 30 cents for the month, something like that. It's nothing. But then they also have their pricing calculator, which is really cool. And I'll, I'll have a link on here to all this stuff. I'll have to find them all. But they do things in what's called gigabyte per second compute, I want to say is what it is. In a nutshell, it's it's dirt cheap. So you first get a free grant of 400,000 gigabyte per second things. And what it boils down to, it's consumption-based. So the amount of milliseconds that your function's running times the amount of RAM in gigabytes that you're doing. And they have an example here that's, that's kind of interesting. I'll go through it real quick just to give you, a, give you an idea of how cheap this actually is. So if you have 3 million executions of your Azure function in a given month, and they take a second each, so 3 million seconds. Let's say that these things took up 512 megabytes of RAM. So you divide that by 1024 to get your gigabyte of RAM. It goes down through all the calculation, works it all out. That thing would have cost you $18 a month for 3 million executions at a second each. And it, auto, and it auto scales it all for you. So that's one of the cool parts about it, right? As, as it runs, if it sees that it's taking too long to finish a request, it's got its own heuristic to figure out, Hey, we need to scale up and run more of these things. So even though you're getting this scale, you're not paying any extra for it. You're paying $18 a month. So really cool stuff. That's my super long winded tip. Yeah. I was just looking at um, how much QIT is uh, costing us right now. And uh looks like uh we just passed the billing cycle. Uh so it's uh estimated for the next billing cycle and it looks like we're gonna hit one cent. Uh, nice. You know, roughly uh, twenty five days into the billing cycle. And that's that's because you're using the free Azure services, right? Uh yeah, yeah, but it does do serverless too. It's got a, a trigger, which is something you can do with serverless. You can say like I want this to run like every couple hours. So that's what I do for um checking the feeds to see if things uh, anything's updated. But it just like the actual feed loader thing only runs in a couple seconds. So it's basically every day I'm running this thing for much less than a minute. <laughs> so we're using an Azure function for that? Yep. Okay. So you're using the HTT or using on a schedule trigger. Yeah, the timer trigger. The timer trigger. Yeah. So all your executions, like I forget how many are included in there, but you have you have a bunch of executions that come free. And, and yep. then after that, you know, like I said, it's it's a nominal charge. So it is. Yeah, and I think I'm doing like five day or something, so it's not anywhere near it. Yeah, you'll ne- you'll never touch anything. the The one cent is probably the storage account. It, that's yeah. probably just the file storage on the system. It's, I mean, it's truly if you want to get into cloud services and just see what it's about, get you an account. Okay, you hook up a credit card. Just don't do something stupid <laughs> that you don't realize that you're Oops. doing. Like, it, because you, uh, it, 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 Joe might have, but uh, fortunately we had some money in the bank, so it wasn't a problem. But, um, but yeah, I mean, if you're doing redundant storage with, you know, multiple region failover and that kind of stuff, you can get into some cash. Um, but if you just go with the free tier stuff and, and, and you can even set your caps in there for it, man, it's a great way to learn this stuff. So. 
That's cute. I was just looking at Azure and uh, now I've, I'm wondering why I've got a service named delete me now. <laughs> uh, well, I'm kind of scared to delete it. <laughs> Dude, I am the same way. I have code like that that I'll look at and I'm like, wait a second. Why, why didn't I delete it back then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Like, oh boy. <laughs> so I might have just taken QIT down. I don't know. Oh man. That's awesome. All right. So, uh, yeah, wrapping up, you know, Joe kind of walked us through the different ways to learn. So, um, yeah, if you forgot any of these these models that we talked about, we've got awesome show notes. So go check those out. Yeah, and let us know too in the uh, the comments if you've got anything that you've kind of learned or any kind of like learning hacks that you think have worked out really well for you because uh, I want to steal them. <laughs> True. Hey, I want to learn from somebody else how to learn. So... Yep. Uh, with that, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or more using your favorite podcast app. Be sure to leave us reviews by heading to coningblocks.net slash review. And while you're up there, as we mentioned, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, question, and rants to the Slack channel, codingblocks.slack.com. You can slide up there uh, at uh, codingblocks.net slash Slack. We'll have a little form. And uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at uh, codingblocks, or you can go to Facebook or anywhere else. We've actually got a bunch of social links there at the top of the page. That's it? That's it.